Well, good morning. Now, that's the sound you might soon hear right at your own front door. And when you go to the front door, you might see two rather well-dressed young men. They're wearing white shirts, dark ties, uh, black name badges. Uh, you may see also perhaps two bicycles in your front yard. These would be elders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known to us as the Mormon missionaries. Now, now can, give me a feel for Oklahoma City. How many of you have already had that knock, and the Mormon missionaries who are at your door? Raise your hand if you've ever had that experience. And Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. That's just about everybody, not you. Okay, give me your name and address. I'll make sure they come see you. We don't want you to miss out on the experience of the Mormon missionaries. Or, or, or this might even happen. How many of you have you've heard the doorbell or a knock at the door? You go there, and two other people at the front door are also very well-dressed, but the difference is they have, like, briefcases with them or satchels, and in those cases, they have a magazine just for you. It's called the Watchtower Magazine, and they're operating out of the local Kingdom Hall. How many of you know where the Kingdom Hall is close to you? Uh, and they're, they're systemat- it's amazing, really. They're systematically going to every door, not just in Oklahoma City, but practically around the world, uh, distributing materials produced by the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. We call these folk the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, give me a feel. How many of you have had that, the Jehovah's Witnesses? Raise your hand if you've experienced Wow, okay, they, some of you raised in both hands. What does that mean? They're real, real active, real active there. They come, they come often. Or, or this has even happened maybe to you. Have you ever been watching television? And a commercial comes on for this best-selling self-help book. It is a New York Times bestseller. And uh, the, the name of the book is called Dianetics. And the author of the book is the late science fiction writer named L. Ron Hubbard who, come to find out, also started a brand new religion called the Church of... Yeah, you know that one, Scientology, that's right. You know, it's, it's interesting. We're, we're living, I think, in a very unusual day. I, I think it's a very strategic time, and I, and I kind of feel, you may be with me, I feel like our nation spiritually right now is at a crossroads. You ever feel that way? It's yet to be determined which direction we're going to go as a nation, how we're going to go spiritually. And part of what the, the challenge is, we have this growing number of alternative faiths arise uh, here in America of world religions. Um, we have um, uh, controversial doctrines, spiritual leaders, uh, and, and oftentimes the challenge is, oftentimes they come to us and they say actually that they are Christian. They're Christian too. Um, uh, the, the Scientologists will say, oh, our message is compatible with Christianity. You can be a Scientologist and be a, a Christian at the same time. Or they'll even go further to say, not only are we Christian, we're the only true Christian church. We are the only um, factory-authorized distributors of eternal life. You must come to us for your salvation. But many times I think what we might be seeing could be better described by the title, Counterfeit Christianity. And that's the title of my message today. I want to talk about something called Counterfeit Christianity. Now, that's, that's a little bit jarring to our ears because you think counterfeit and Christian, you think about something wrong and something right, and you put the two together. Could there even be such a thing as counterfeit Christianity? Well, I would submit to you that anything that has value, there are always going to be counterfeits. 
In fact, there's a correlation. The more valuable something is, the more likely it is that you're going to have imitations, counterfeits, clones. You're going to have imitations. So uh, let me give you an example. Uh, Would you say that a diamond is very valuable? Yep. Now that's why they have the fake ones. Now, for example, now some of the imitation diamonds are very well done. They have one that's called the cubic, um, cu- yeah, you know about that, don't you? Cubic zirconium. Now, I look at a cubic zirconium, and my first thought, what a beautiful diamond. But it's interesting. A jeweler looks at that same stone and says, well, James, that's actually not an actual diamond. That's a manufactured stone. This is a cubic zirconium. So diamonds, they're going to be imitations because of the value. Pearls, because they're very valuable, they're going to be imitation pearls. I'm even told that the, that, the, that the Rolex watch is the most counterfeited watch in the history of the world. I've been told, I can't verify, but I've been told there are now more fake Rolexes than real Rolexes in circulation. Now why are there so many imitation Rolexes? I think the main reason is because of the value of the real thing. A Rolex is expensive, it's precision, it's beautiful, it's finely crafted. Of course there are going to be imitations, there are going to be counterfeits. You know, I never remember ever seeing a counterfeit Timex watch. There's a reason for that, value. Now, I would submit to you the most valuable message in the history of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that value, yes, I would expect to find counterfeits and imitations. And our challenge this morning is going to be, if we're, if we're really going to be salt and light, if we're going to be able to guard our own hearts and protect those close to us, our challenge this morning is, how can we recognize counterfeits? What's the difference between someone who maybe goes to a church that does have some different practices than we do, but, but, but actually at the heart of it, they're brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, just, it's, the, same, it's the same beliefs that we have. Versus another religion, another church that looks almost identical, but actually it is an imitation, not the real thing. That, that's our challenge today. And not just to recognize the counterfeit. I, I, I want to come out of today, uh, this, this, eve, this afternoon as well, this evening, and I want to be able to not just recognize counterfeits. I want to encourage you to reach people involved in other faiths. Reach out to them with the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm, I'm just excited to be able to do that with you. Now, we have a lot of good tools and resources I brought with me today to help to be able to recognize counterfeits and, and reach out to those of other faiths uh, with the gospel. But the best resource I could definitely share with you today is always going to be God's Word. So when it comes to counterfeits, I, w- I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, uh, this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to look today at a key passage a short passage here. Paul is writing, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the believers, to the Christians, who were living at that time in a city known as Corinth, the city of Corinth. And right in the middle of this, this letter to them, he stops kind of in the middle here, and he addresses the very thing we're talking about today in Oklahoma City. He's going to be talking about counterfeits, deception, being led astray. And uh, so let's uh, turn, if you will, 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 3. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, But I am afraid, he, sa- he, he has a fear, as the serpent deceived Eve by his, by his cunning. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul says he's concerned, he's, um, 
He's, he actually goes beyond concern. He says, I'm afraid. Now, my first thought is, you, you don't hear Paul say that very often. Paul was afraid of almost nothing. He, he was the same guy you read later in the chapter. He, uh, he put his life regularly in jeopardy for the gospel. He was shipwrecked on several occasions. For the sake of the gospel, he was stoned and left for dead outside the city of Lystra. He was um, persecuted uh, under death threats. None of these moved him. He was, a, he was afraid of nothing. But we find here in verse 3 that there was one topic that would strike fear in the Apostle Paul. The very issue we're dealing with today. This whole, this whole uh, area of deception. And let me say this. I believe this topic, this counterfeit Christianity subject, is going to impact every family here today. Some of you already know it already is. But every one of us, our families are going to be touched in one way or another by this topic. Uh, it may not be you personally. This could be students. This could be one of your best friends at school I'm talking about right now. It could be someone very close to you. It could be um, parents. This could be your daughter. This could be a grandson. It could be a co-worker. But every family here is going to be touched by this. And we have to understand to be able to recognize those differences and be able to love and compassionately reach out to, to rescue those who are caught in the balance in this area of deception. Now, there's a wealth of, of, of information and, and truth here in verse 3, but what I really want to do to call attention to, he says, is the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. And it's fascinating to go back in Genesis 3. He's saying that the way people are deceived today is, is pretty much the same way the original couple were led astray back in the Garden of Eden. Satan is ultimately behind this. He's very, very crafty, very cunning. But he, he says one thing here that I want to draw your attention to, one little word which is easy to skip over, but I think it's a critically important word. Look at verse 3 with me. See where it says, your thoughts will be led astray. Now I want you to circle that word your. Your thoughts might be led astray. And I want to ask the question this morning, when he says your thoughts, whose thoughts? When, in other words, when he says your, who is he talking about? Who is the your? Or, or as the English teachers would ask, what is the antecedent of the pronoun? Yeah, however you want to say it. What I mean is, who is this? When he says, your thoughts might be led astray, is he talking about the, the minds of the atheists? Is that who he's talking to here? Maybe the minds of the Jewish people, his Jewish culture, his Jewish family. Now, we do know elsewhere in, in, the, in the scriptures that Paul was concerned about that, but that's not who he's talking to here. When he says, your minds, he's talking about us as believers. And one of the most important truths that I want you to nail down right here at the beginning is the reality that Christians can be deceived. In fact, this is in your outline. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, the very first thing I'd like you to make a note in A in your outline is you could put down Christians can be deceived. Or if you like, you could put your name there. James Walker can be deceived. You can be deceived. I could be deceived. I, I realized in preparing the message for this morning... I realized early on, we're going to get a temptation with this message. In a few moments, I'm going to be tempted, you're going to be tempted, and here's our temptation. We're going to be tempted to think, doesn't apply to me. It's those other people, you see. Not me. I, I don't have to worry about this. I'm okay. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Christ. Uh, what we're seeing here is Paul is writing to the Christians, not the non-Christians. 
And if you do a study of deception throughout the New Testament, it's, it's uh, ironic. Almost all the warnings are warnings given to believers, not the non-believers. Christians can actually be deceived. This applies to us. Now, I know you're thinking, well, James, I know some Christians. You're right. Uh, Christians can be deceived. But you need to understand, James, we're not just Christians. We're Baptists. How can I say this? We as Baptists may have some of the worst problems in this area. Uh, the Mormons have claimed at one point that they were baptizing 282 Southern Baptists into the Mormon church every seven days. Being a Baptist doesn't necessarily prevent deception. Uh, you know, so, yeah, but, but, but see, we're not just Baptists. We've got a great pastor at, at Emmaus. Uh, we, we've got a great pastor. Well, you need to realize these people had a pretty good pastor, the Apostle Paul. And Paul says what? I am afraid for you. So again, this is something that's going to impact every one of us. A big part of our ministry, Watchman Fellowship is, a, is a, an apologetics ministry, meaning defend the faith. And we do teach Christians and equip them and do it ourselves, reaching out to people of all different kinds of religions, Muslims and atheists and, and, and uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and every kind of faith you can imagine. But much of our ministry is also in the area of an ounce of prevention. How can we help you guard your family? How can we help you protect your friends or protect your own heart? And there's two tools I want to, resources I want to mention to you to help in this area. Uh, and one of them is something called a free profile. If you look in your outline, be in your outline. Avoid deception uh, are free profiles. Now, you can go to our website at watchman.org. Uh, this evening, we'll probably have a little form for you to fill out. We would love to give you a free subscription. Every other month, uh, for over 25 years now, our staff, our team has put together a four-page document called The Profile. And every other month, we deal with a current issue that you need to know about, a world religion, a controversial doctrine or practice. This deals with the, with the uh, agnostic Bart Ehrman. Uh, this is something every Christian should know who this guy is and what he teaches. We let you know about things like this, and, and it's absolutely free. We'll send that to you. And it's only four pages. Now, we did a lot of marketing research on this, and we never make them five or six pages because we discovered early on Christians will only read four pages. So we're keeping it simple. Uh, and, but it's a great tool. You can, you can add it to a ring binder and keep a collection of those if you like. And so you can avoid deception with our profiles. Another tool that we have... A great starting place is a book that I've written, see in your outline. Uh, you can avoid deception with uh, the concise guide to today's religions and spirituality. Um, I wrote this book with the help of my staff, and what we did is we took all of our files at our headquarters in, in Arlington, Texas. We took about almost 10 years, and we boiled it down, and we condensed it, and we squeezed it all into one book. 1,700 religions, cults, occult groups, churches, denominations, controversial doctrines, practices, spiritual leaders, all cross-referenced. So when you have a friend, students, that gets involved in Kabbalah, and you don't know what that's all about, you have a quick place to go get a, an answer you can trust. You say, I know, but I could Google it. Yeah, but you don't know what you're getting when you Google. You can trust this. It's been researched. It's been documented. It's coming from a Christian source, and, uh, and you can know what it's talking about. So what I want to do, that we, we do this to help you avoid deception, so what I'd like to do this morning is I would like to very quickly read you the 1,700. I'm not going to do that, though, because I realize there's no way you're going to remember 1,700 religions, cults, and churches, and 
controversial doctrines and practices. I'm not going to ask you today to remember the 1,700. I'm not even going to suggest that you need to memorize uh, 100 of them. But what I am going to ask you to do, to remember, to learn, I'm going to ask you to write down in your outline. Listen, I'm going to ask you this morning, challenge you to burn into your very hearts today. Not 1,700 of them, but I do want you to know the three spiritual warning signs. Because the scriptures give us in verse 4 the three main things to look for. The main warning signs if you're dealing with counterfeit Christianity. If you're dealing with some form of deception. Now I know you're thinking, well James, if it's, if it's wrong, I'll be able to spot that right away. And, and I think oftentimes you do. I think many times right away you're going to recognize this is not of God. But let me tell you, sometimes you don't. The way deception works is very simple. Deception is deceptive. No one's going to come up to you and say, I, I beg your pardon, I'm a, I'm a false prophet. Would you like to follow my teachings? Don't say it that way. No one's going to come up and say to you, uh, I beg your pardon, I'm demon-possessed. Can I teach you something? It's going to look Christian. They're going to have Bibles in their hands. They're going to use all the right words. And and let me tell you another phenomenon. Oftentimes, they are very extremely nice people. We get calls all the time at Watchmen, and I'll I'll get a call about a particular group, and almost invariably I'll hear, but James, they're such nice people. And and my first thought is, they may be nicer than you. I'm, I'm certainly they're nicer than me, but that's not what the Bible says to look for. There are three things we are to look for. Let's look at verse 4. It says, here we go. For if someone comes, the Bible explains, someone's going to be coming to you. They may be knocking at your door. They may be an evangelist or some kind of missionary or teacher or pastor. Someone's going to come to you. Today, how they do it most often, they come to you on your television is what happens. They're coming to your home through your television set or maybe through radio or podcast, vlog. They're coming to you with a message. And you say, well, this sounds good, but is it, is it of God or not? Is this, is this true or is it counterfeit? Here's what the scriptures say. Watch these three things. Let's look at verse 4. For if someone comes and, now here's the first one, number one, proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. It's the first one. Or, here's the second warning, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or, here's the third, or a different gospel, or if you accept a, a different gospel from the one you accepted, he says, you put up with it readily enough. Now what he's saying is you shouldn't have put up with it at all. But the problem is you, he's afraid that you're going to readily put up with this when it's actually the wrong Jesus, the wrong spirit, the wrong gospel. So the three things to look for, you may have caught it, it's really the three another's. We have to watch out. This is in your outline, the one, two, three. One, we have to watch out for another Jesus. Secondly, another spirit. And thirdly, another gospel. Another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. Now, now my job today is to kind of connect the dots, to kind of break it down. Well, what does it mean, another Jesus? I thought there's only one Jesus. Well, there's only one true Jesus. Did you know we could fill this auditorium today with people claiming to be Jesus of one kind or another? Uh, there's counterfeit Christs out there. There was in the first century. There are today. Uh, so there's only one true Jesus. We have to recognize if it's a genuine Jesus or a different Jesus, another Jesus. 
So what I did to kind of give you some examples to make it real practical is I just went through the book, and of course there's many, many, many examples. I just picked out three for you to kind of show you what this might look like today. And what I want to do is I want to start with a very easy example. I want to build your confidence. We're going to start easy. I want to share with you about one of the strangest, here it is. I want to share with you about one of the strangest cults in the whole book. Now, when I tell you this one on page 282 is strange, I look at cults almost every day. This one is strange even by cult standards. Or, or you could argue it's groups like this that give cults a bad name. It's uh, headquartered in Southern California. The, the leader of the group uh, is a man named Dr. John Allegro. And um, uh, uh, Dr. Allegro, come to find out, was a earned Ph.D., uh, Dead Sea Scrolls scholar. He was one of the official translators of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, brilliant um, linguist. But he starts a religion down in Southern California, which is apparently is recognized by the state of California like a nonprofit organization. But you're not going to believe what he teaches about Jesus until I give you the name of the group. If you're taking notes, this is A in your outline. The name of his religion is called the Sacred Mushroom of the Cross. And unbelievably, Dr. Allegro and his followers believe that Jesus is a mushroom. Now, Dr. Allegro even wrote a book about Jesus. You see it up here on the screen. On the cover of the book, he puts a picture of Jesus. He said, Jesus is that mushroom. Now, the problem with this religion, I want to make sure we're on the same page. How many realize there might be a problem? Let's just start at the base. It might be a problem. Here's the problem. If you were to see Dr. Allegro today and say, John, do you believe in Jesus? What would he tell you? I believe in Jesus. I wrote a book about Jesus. I'm a scholar. Of course, I'm a Christian. But I wanted to start with the real obvious. Is it pretty obvious he's not talking about the same Jesus we are? You, you catch that? Now, now, the good news about this religion, you don't have to be a real Bible expert. See, uh, uh, you, you don't, you, this is not a very good counterfeit. Let, let, let's say you moved to California and someone invited you to the church. And let's just say for sake of argument that the, the people were very friendly. Maybe they had wonderful music, right? Uh, you really enjoyed yourself, but you noticed something the very first Sunday that was odd. They had a cross on the wall, but on that cross you saw the outline of a crucified mushroom. And you say, you know, I can't put my finger on it. Some of us are quicker than others. But how many of you, within the first 30 seconds, you know there's a counterfeit? This is a counterfeit. Come on now. Okay, within the first six months, you begin to suspect this is not... <laughs> now, I say this. this I want to start with an easy example. I think every, almost, not everybody, 99.9% .9 of people are going to take one look at that and say, we know that's not genuine Christianity. I, I want to start with an with a over-the-top example to prove the point. Now the problem is usually the counterfeit is going to be something much more difficult to spot than something so obvious, uh, like you know this example of a mushroom. Let me give you a second example. Uh, two, this is going to be in your outline. Let me talk to you about the Jesus of Mormonism for just a moment. The Jesus of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Jesus of Mormonism. Now the Mormon people are some of the nicest people you will ever meet. And I'm not here today at all to bash or attack Mormons, as I shared in the first, um, uh, the first, we've got two Mormons right now that I've befriended that needed a place to stay for the week, uh, that are staying upstairs at the Watchman office right now. 
and I'm going to have all week to take them out to lunch and get to spend some time with them and to be able to share my testimony and my story with them. Uh, I love the Mormon people. Many of my family are still Latter-day Saints, still Mormon. I was born and raised a Mormon myself, fourth generation. But as a Mormon, when I believed in Jesus Christ, and that was the name of our church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you need to understand it's not the same Jesus I believe in today as an evangelical Christian. Now, as a Mormon, I was baptized at the age of eight years old. I held the Aaronic priesthood. I served as a deacon, teacher, and priest. I'll tell you more of that, that whole story this, this, this afternoon at 5 o'clock. But the whole time I'm a Mormon, I'm thinking I'm a Christian. And they did teach me true things about Jesus, that he was the Son of God. They taught me that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. They taught me true things. But they also taught me things about Jesus that were not at all true. They taught me that Jesus was the Son of God, but he, I was told he's not the only begotten Son of God. As a Mormon, I was taught that God is married, so you have Heavenly Father and His wife, Heavenly Mother, and that God and His wife have literally billions of begotten sons and begotten daughters. That Jesus was one of the begotten sons of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, our Mother in Heaven. And I was taught that there were two candidates to be the Savior of the world, a Democrat and a Republican. Just kidding about that part, but... But I was taught that there were two candidates to be Savior of the world. Jesus wanted to be our Savior, but so did his spirit brother named Lucifer. I was taught that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers. I don't have time this morning to get into all these differences, but uh, the Book of Mormon tells a story about how after his death on the cross and resurrection, Jesus comes here to America to preach his gospel to the Native Americans. That's the story of the Book of Mormon, to preach the gospel to the Indians and when you read the Book of Mormon, you find out the Indians are actually Jewish. Did you know that? And uh, the, 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 these are the lost, uh, the lost tribe of Israel. And uh, many other things I could tell you in this, this, this afternoon, I'm going to tell you some differences. But let me just say that it's not the same Jesus. Now, I want to encourage you at 5 o'clock to be here. I'm going to share my story from Mormonism to Christianity. I was blessed by God to have Christian friends who cared about me. And built that relationship with me. And shared with me, asked me very good questions. And, and were patient with me. And helped me make my transition from Mormonism to Christianity. I will share that with you this evening. But I also know that usually when I share that story from Mormonism to Christianity, almost uh, you know, well over half the time, we have Mormon guests. So I want you to be here to be equipped, to be, to be able to learn how to share with your Mormon neighbors. But please be praying for any Mormon guests we may have at 5 o'clock today, because I, I didn't come all the way from Texas uh, to win an argument. I don't have any desire to win arguments anymore. I want to win the person. And that does not happen by merely having good arguments or good documentation or reasoning. Those are, those are helpful. But it comes when the Holy Spirit touches someone's life. And I, I want to see that happen. So be praying for any Mormon guests that we might have. So the Mormon people, great people, loving people. Um, I, I love the Mormon people, but it's not the same Jesus. It's a different Jesus. One more example from the book I'll share with you about another Jesus is the Jesus of the Watchtower. The Jesus of the Watchtower. With a group this size, even this afternoon, 2 or 3 o'clock, some of you might get that knock on the door. And when you go there, there's going to be two Jehovah's Witnesses, and you're going to be tempted to say, James Walker told me you would be here today. But don't say that. If you just ask the Jehovah's Witness at your door, do you believe in Jesus, what are they going to say? 
Yeah, we love Jesus, we believe in Jesus, but I think we're seeing in verse 4, maybe that's not the best way of discerning. It's not maybe the best question to ask. Um, There's no record anywhere in the New Testament of Jesus ever asking his disciples, hey guys, do, do people believe I exist? That was never the question. No, no, the question at Caesarea Philippi was clear. Who do men say that I am? Now see, that's the question. And with the Jesus of the watchtower, as I shared in this first hour with you in the Bible study hour, they do not have a Jesus who's the second person of the Trinity. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Their Jesus is not God in the flesh. Their, their Jesus is actually the angel Michael. They believe Jehovah God was alone God, all alone, In one day in eternity past, he creates an angel and names the angel Michael. They say it was the angel Michael that was born at Bethlehem. It was the angel, not God in the flesh. It was the angel Michael. Not Emmanuel, God with us. No, it was an angel with us. That angel becomes a man, a perfect man, a human. Uh, He dies. This is interesting. There, Jesus does not die on a cross. No, he dies on a pole or stake with both hands stretched over his head. And after his death on the, on the torture stake, they teach that the body of Jesus was then placed in the tomb and disappeared forever. Jesus never rose bodily from the dead. Now, they will say he rose spiritually, again, to resume his identity as the angel Michael, but not as a human. In fact, one Watchtower publication went so far as to boast, quote, the man Jesus is dead forever dead, end quote. So you have, a, you have a, a Jesus who's never been God and is no longer human. Is that, let me just ask you, is that the Jesus we believe in? Or do you have another Jesus? Now, I could give, give you many other examples from the book, but the bottom line is we've got to go beyond do you believe in Jesus or uh, do you love Jesus and go into who is Jesus. Uh, is he fully God? Is he fully man? Did he do everything necessary for our salvation on the cross? Or do we have another Jesus? See, you could be wrong on many things. And let me just say this. In, in, in Christianity, there's a lot of diversity. And, and I don't complain about it. I think that's a strength more than a weakness. A lot of diver- every Christian doesn't believe the same thing on everything. Did you know that? It might be a surprise to some of you guys. Every Christian doesn't believe the same thing about every, t- every subject. We have differences. Even we Baptists have our differences, don't we? You know about that, don't you? But listen, you can be wrong about some things and still be a brother and sister in the Lord. You can be wrong about eschatology, the end times, and still be a Christian. You can be wrong about church government, still be a Christian. You can be wrong, I know it's hard to believe, you can be wrong about Arminianism and Calvinism and still be a Christian. But let me tell you something. If you're right on all your beliefs except you have the wrong Jesus... That is a deadly case of mistaken identity. This is why this is one of the criteria. Uh, Another Jesus. We have to ask that question. But there's a second one here, a warning here. Be in your outline. Um, Another spirit. It says be in your outline. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received. Now, the spirit we have already received as, as believers is going to be what spirit? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. You say, well, James, I thought there was only one Holy Spirit. Are you saying there are other spirits in the world besides the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. And so there are other spirits out there, and we, this, is, this is why we have to test those spirits. What we're seeing is something can be real, this is A in your outline, something can be real and still not be true. 
When something comes along, there are other spirits. There are spirits, the Bible calls them familiar spirits, unclean spirits. Uh, these are opposite of Holy Spirit, another of a different kind. You have the Holy Spirit. These are actually unholy spirits. Uh, perhaps fallen angels, uh, demons. We're talking about demonic spirits here. Now, now I'm not, I'm, I'm, the Bible is not making the case here, I don't believe, that a, that a Christian can be demon-possessed. I think it's impossible for a number of reasons for a true Christian to be demon-possessed. Now, you may know some Christians who are borderline in that area, and that's between you and them. But I, I think a true Christian can't be possessed. But what we can, and hence the warning, we can be led astray by these other spirits. Maybe not possessed. I wish I could take you with me to some of the places we go some of the psychic fairs, some of the metaphysical bookstores. I personally interviewed the, the world-renowned leader in the area of channeling, about having spirits of deceased people come inside their bodies and bring forth messages. Um, let, let me say, the majority of what I see, and when you've seen it and watched it for long enough, with a trained eye, you begin to see, m most of it is deception in the area of fakery. A lot of this is just fake. They're good actors, good actresses. But let me tell you, I have seen some things that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up when I realized that what I was seeing was real, but it wasn't God. It can be a real spirit, but that doesn't mean it's the Holy Spirit. So here, here's our challenge. In our, the world we live in right now, something comes into our sphere of influence, our sphere of influence, and we see it and we think, wow, listen, it's, it's, um, it's supernatural, it's miraculous, it's spiritual, um, it must be God. Stop right there. How do you know that? Because it's spiritual, but that doesn't mean it's the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, James, it's miraculous. Well, it doesn't mean it's coming from God. Well, but it feels so good. That should have been your first warning right there. What feels good is almost always the wrong thing. So we have to, the Bible says, test the spirits, whether they be of God, because many false prophets have gone out in the world. So we, we have to understand that something can be real and still not be true. Uh, secondly, we must see this. Uh, B in your outline, deception has nothing to do with intelligence. What we're seeing here is this is a spiritual thing happening to people, not an intellectual thing. The reason that we might go down the wrong path is not because we didn't pass a particular course that we took, or our grade point average, or our intelligence, our IQ. Um, many years ago, we helped a young man get out 90 miles south of my office in Arlington, Texas, is Waco, and some of us are old enough to remember the Branch Davidians and David Koresh, a man who said that he was the sinful Messiah. He was the second coming of Christ, in effect. And he had followers, and some of us are old enough to remember the fire that engulfed that, the inferno and all those people who died believing that David Koresh was their Messiah uh, outside of Waco, Texas. We helped a young man, Robert Scott, get out of that group literally months before that fire. And he believes to this day, had he not got out when he did, he would have been one of the ones who perished. One of the men that didn't get out, we, and I never actually talked with him, uh, actually, but I heard a lot about him, heard of him, uh, heard from him, uh, was the attorney for David Koresh. Harvard-trained lawyer. Brilliant, keen mind. But he was one of the ones who died in the fire, believing David Koresh was his Messiah. It's not about how smart you are or your IQ. What's happening is a spiritual thing. This is why we have to discern it spiritually. And see, that we get an implication here in your outline. 
Deception comes from not knowing the genuine. How do you test a spirit? The Bible tells us to do so. Here's what I would suggest to you. When something comes along, you say, well, James, it's spiritual, it's supernatural, it's miraculous. Before you accept it, first ask, let me test it biblically. This is the genuine right here, the Bible. So let me test it by saying, what does the Bible say about that doctrine, that practice, that belief? Is it, if it doesn't line up with the Bible, it's not the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit authored this book. So the Holy Spirit's not going to disagree with the Holy Spirit. So this is the way that we can objectively test things. What does the Bible say about that particular practice or doctrine? And this is how we test it spiritually. We know that the Holy Spirit gave us this book. Well, there's a third warning uh, I want you to talk about uh, to share with you from verse 4. It's uh, another gospel. Three in your outline, another gospel. And it says it this way in verse 4. Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted. What is a different gospel? What does that look like? Well, the word gospel in our, in our New Testament is a Greek word which simply means good news. Evangelion, good news. So every time you see the word gospel, you know what does that mean? It means the good news. But it's interesting as, you, as we read the New Testament that we find a lot, along with the good news, along with the gospel, have you noticed there's also some bad news? Have you noticed that? Um, have, how many of you heard this before? Which would you like first? I've got some good news. How many of you heard this? I've got some bad news. You've heard that? I, I hate that, by the way, because I've noticed something. The good news is never good enough to offset the bad news. Have you noticed that? So, when you read the New Testament, though, it's interesting. You do have some bad news in the New Testament. The, the bad news is the, the, the New Testament teaches that all of us have sinned and come short of God's glory. Now, sin means that we've broken God's law. We've done things like perhaps lying or, you know, or, or cheating or, or having evil thoughts or, or, or um, uh, gossiping. I mean, there's many, many things that we do. And the Bible says all of us do. I do that. You do that. And you say, well, at least we're all in the same boat. But what makes it really bad news is the price to pay. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Now, what wages means in the Bible kind of means what it means today. How many of you ever experienced wages before? It means you do something and then payday comes, right? You know what that means, right? So you, payday's coming. You, you've worked and now pay. The Bible says you've done something, sin, and the Bible says payday's coming. And the death it's talking about is not just dying death, which would be bad enough. It's a death that separates us from ever, from the love and the beauty and the grace of, of God and of Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I'm always amazed the number of times I've seen even some of us as Christians are really just not real clear on this concept. I hear this all the time. You probably do too. I hear Christians say this. Uh, well, I, you know, I only hope that when I die, I get my just reward. I say, oh, Really? Uh, I don't want my just reward when I die because I'm a what? Sinner. What would my just reward be? I don't, want one, I don't want what I deserve when I die. In fact, I want the opposite. I want what I didn't deserve. This is where the gospel, this is the good news part. The biblical gospel, the true gospel, is always going to be, be in your outline, it's the gospel of grace. It means you get what you don't deserve. You get as a free gift something you never earned. You say, I want what I earned. No, you don't. You want what you didn't earn. And so that is that Christ pays the price for us. He lives the perfect life that we could not. 
He takes the penalty of the death that we deserve on his body on the cross. He dies on the cross for our sins. He's buried. He rises victoriously from the dead. So not only does he pay for our sins on the cross, which is wonderful enough, also all his goodness, all his good deeds go to our credit, go to our account. How many would agree if that's true, that's very good news? That's why they call it the gospel. It's a gospel of grace. You can't earn it or deserve it. In fact, you have to start with the principle of you're getting what you don't deserve. Now, see in your outline, that other gospel is going to be the opposite of that. So the counterfeit gospel is going to be a gospel of works. The counterfeit gospel tells us you get what you deserve, and you can earn your salvation through good works. You have to have maybe a combination of faith plus some good works, or many good works, but all of them are going to say you need good works in order to make you right with God, to have your sins forgiven. You say, well, James, what good works must I do to be saved? That's all going to depend on which counterfeit you join. If you become a Jehovah's Witness, you quickly find out your salvation is based on two things, faith in Jehovah and magazine distribution. There is no salvation apart from being a proclaimer of the kingdom, which for most Jehovah's Witnesses means the going door-to-door distributing the Watchtower literature. Why do, you know how many Jehovah's Witnesses go door-to-door? Anybody have an idea? It's a, it's a trick question. They all do. You're not counted as one of Jehovah's Witnesses unless you turn in the report listing how many hours you spent in the door-to-door work. It's a salvation by works. As a Mormon, I'll share with you this evening. I was taught that my salvation hung in the balance of getting into the secret temple ritual. Do you realize most Mormons never qualify to get inside one of the temples? I'll talk about what, that, what happens and why and how difficult it is to get inside the temple. But my salvation was based on that. Oh, we have something, we have a profile that we put out recently. I think I have a copy here on uh, something called the Hebrew Roots Movement. Hebrew Roots Movement uh, is uh, something that teaches that our salvation is based, uh, well, there's different variations of it, but in the extreme variations of Hebrew Roots, uh, your salvation is based on Jesus plus keeping the kosher law. You have to, no pork or shellfish, no shrimp. You have to keep the festivals. Uh, you can't celebrate uh, a Christian holiday. You have to keep the festivals of the Old Testament. Uh, you must keep the Sabbath from sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night. So let me say something. Kosher laws couldn't save a Jew. How in the world is it going to save a Gentile? We're not saved by works. Now, I should clarify. We are saved by works, but not by our works. We're saved by the works of Christ. That's why we call Jesus the Savior, not me. So our salvation was bought with a price, but that price was not dollars and cents. That price was not good deeds, good works. That price was the precious blood of Jesus Christ who shed that blood for us on the cross of Calvary, took the penalty meant for us, died, rose victoriously from the dead, and offers us eternal life, not based on how good we are, but by acknowledging that we're not good and that we need a Savior. Jesus saves us. Three things to watch for this morning. Another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. I'm going to ask you to stand, if you will, with your heads bowed and eyes closed for just a moment. Let me just ask a question, if I could. How many of you today know someone right now? Let me just ask it this way. How many, raise your hand if you could tell me the name of a Jehovah's Witness. You know a Jehovah's Witness by name, you could tell me their name right now. Would you raise your hand? Wow, okay, half of us, more than half, okay. 
Put your hands down. Let me ask you, how many of you know a Latter-day Saint, a Mormon? You can tell me the name of a Mormon right now. How many of you know a Muslim? You can tell me the name of a Muslim. Would you raise your hand? Wow, that many. I know at the university there's a lot of Muslims. How many of you know the name of an atheist or agnostic, skeptic? Put your hands down for just a moment. There are many others in counterfeits, maybe the Wicca or the occult. Uh, if you raise your hand or there's someone else on your heart, I want to give you a chance to pray for that person in just a moment. Some of you may even want to come down to the front and kneel down. I'm thankful when I was a Mormon, I had some Christian friends just like you who cared about and prayed for me, and they prayed that God would reach me with the gospel, and God answered that prayer. And I want to give you a chance to pray that way. If you raise your hand for somebody, I want to give you a chance to pray that way. But I also know that there may be some of us here, there probably are a number here, who you're not certain about your own eternal life. You say, James, what about me? Do I have the real thing or do I have a counterfeit? How do I know? The truth of the matter is, if I could summarize my whole message this morning in one sentence, here you go. A person can be very spiritual and still be lost. A case can be made that for the, our Muslim friends, our Latter-day Saint neighbors, Jehovah's Witnesses, Way International, Unification Church, we could go down the list. But let me tell you, it's not just them. It could be true for a Baptist. Being a Baptist has never saved anyone. Going to church has never saved anyone. The only salvation is found in the real Jesus, through the power of the real Holy Spirit, with the genuine gospel. Have you ever received the real Jesus? If you're, if you're not certain, I want to give you an opportunity. We're going to have a time of invitation. Some are going to come down to pray. If you're not certain, I want you to give you an opportunity to come down to me or one of the other staff that will be down here at the front. And we would like to share with you how you can have a certainty that your sins have been forgiven by grace through faith alone, not by goodness or our good works. Whatever decision God might be laying on your heart to pray for others or to seek, seek salvation yourself, you can say yes to God by coming forward right now. As we, sing, as we sing during this time of invitation, I want to invite you to come right now as we sing Come Now.